in the night Your heart fills with dread Probably a murderer who wants you dead It could be a ghost, a demon or worse Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse It's hopeless, you're doomed You'd call a priest if you could You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood I'm gonna kill you Welcome to Freaky Friday Where we tell your odd but true stories Happy Friday to everyone Another week we've this made it through Tuesday Yes. But really, it's Friday. You'll hear this on Friday, August 5th, and I hope it's an amazing day. I do as well. I currently am in St. Louis because my brother's getting married tomorrow. Tomorrow being Saturday because today is Friday. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, I will have traveled for the first time on a plane with two young children. So um, thank you for everyone's thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> As I, uh, hopefully we all came out of that unscathed. We, Your we flight see. went great. I the kids so. were amazing. One of them slept. The other one watched the tablet. It was a fantastic flight. I'm uh, just thank you. Putting it in the universe. I appreciate I, that. I'm in Chicago. So I'm just wandering around Chicago. Ella goes, do you fall asleep on a plane? I said, well, I usually do, but I probably won't this time. And she said, why not? And I said, well, I have to... <laughs> have to be awake for everything that's going to happen. She's like, what if you fell asleep and then baby brother fell out of your lap and just started running around? I was like, I don't think any of that's going to happen, but let's hope, let's hope none of that did happen. Uh, And if I do happen to fall asleep with a squirmy toddler on my lap that Tommy jumps in or at the very least a flight attendant. Somebody, somebody will step up. (laughs) Before we know it, Simon's in the cockpit. So hopefully (laughs) uh, everyone on this plane, uh, it takes a village, so appreciate your your help in advance. I love it. Well, we've got six uh, weird and wild stories, so I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get freaky. This first one is a short one, but it's a doozy. This one is from Diane, and it is a chilling serial killer connection. Diane from Kentucky with a real quick one. My ex-husband used to be a skip tracer for a major credit card company. He'd call around to neighbors, relatives, employers, and exes to find a customer that had skipped out of his bill. He had been trying to contact a customer in Milwaukee to no avail, so he called that customer's neighbors to try to get information about him. The neighbor was practically hysterical when he called. She said that her neighbor was crazy and that she was terrified of him that he'd just gotten into a fight or something and chased his boyfriend naked down the street, and the cops didn't do anything about it. She said that she kept trying to tell the cops that there was something wrong with him, but they ignored her pleas to arrest him. The customer? Jeffrey Dahmer. The product he'd stopped paying for on his credit card? A refrigerator. I get chills whenever I think about it. Wow. This is... Something I'll think about probably every day until I die. Yeah. That's a case, Jeffrey Dahmer, and some other cases we've covered where concerned neighbors have made their feelings known and have mm-hmm. been uh, denied any behavior. You know, uh, nobody comes out and checks. Or they check and they go, well, it looks okay. And doesn't they don't really do anything. That is so chilling that he was on the phone with her. I bet, or I wonder if, because... 
the reason Dahmer was eventually caught is because one of his victims escaped and fleed and went and was like, crazy shit's going down. What if it was this guy that she's talking about saying one of the boyfriends ran out? Could have been. Yeah, that's horrific to see that him running out and doesn't get any police help. Yeah, and let's just all bring up the elephant in the room. The fact that a refrigerator is what he was defaulting on. We all probably can assume why that refrigerator was needed. Yeah, that's horrifying. Well, this next one is called A Brush with True Crime Therapist Edition. And because it is from a therapist, they have chosen to remain anonymous. Hello, ladies. Love the show and the edition of Freaky Fridays. I'm not sure if this one qualifies as more creepy or freaky. So let's just get into it. One quick note. I am a licensed mental health professional, so I'm keeping this story as sparse as possible because I love what I do and I would like to keep my professional license as long as possible. Hashtag confidentiality. Names, ages, gingers, etc. have been altered to keep this as bare bones as possible. Heather, you have my permission to edit further if anything problematic stands out to you from the legal perspective. I won't say when this incident occurred, where the incident occurred, or what type of mental health services I provide, just in case. So here's my near miss with true crime. I was working at a behavioral health facility during my training, and I was reviewing an upcoming patient file. The patient, we'll call him John, was referred by a social worker from the nursing home where John's spouse, we'll call her Jane, was residing. John had been reviewing Jane's discharge paperwork with the social worker and had made some statements about Jane's chronic medical illnesses and how he would like to see her at peace. Red flag number one. He also mentioned he would like to take her home from the nursing home early because he didn't want her to have her last days in a facility. Red flag number two. And at some point in the conversation, a discussion about John's concealed carry permit came up. Red flag number three. So the social worker referred John for our services. Now, our facility was not an urgent care facility by any means. So as we were reviewing the case, I was discussing my concerns with my supervisor as to why the social worker hadn't done a more imminent safety evaluation, given all the red flags. Additional red flags included John being an older male, red flag number four, with significant life stressors, red flag number five. We prepped for the case with the intent to ask all of these important questions when we met with John. Well, John never came to our clinic. He canceled his appointment three hours before he was supposed to arrive. Fast forward a few weeks, and I'm reading the local newspaper. Attempted murder-suicide of elderly couple. Oh, no. Authorities were alerted to conduct a welfare check on John and Jane Doe, ages 77 and 74, when neighbors reported hearing a gunshot. Well, shit. It turns out, after John canceled his appointment with us, he discharged Jane from the nursing home early, took her home, and they both stayed in the car as he closed the garage door, with the car still running. Based on the coroner's report and given Jane's physical illness, she likely passed quickly. When John did not pass after several hours, he attempted to end his life with a firearm. That's what the neighbors heard. It did not kill him, and he was transported to the hospital for care. He reported to police that he and Jane had agreed to a murder-suicide pact. However, based on the documentation I had read while I was preparing for his case, I'm skeptical Jane had the wherewithal to make such decisions. 
I never got a chance to follow up on the legal proceedings since my training had come to an end, and I had moved to another city to start providing behavioral health services independently. From a mental health perspective, suicidality and homicidality can be some of the scariest things we face. I am grateful for the supervision and training I have received. I do still wonder sometimes about what my training experience would have been like had John chosen to attend his appointment with us. Thank you for sharing my brush with true crime. What do you think? Hashtag anonymous, hashtag therapist. That's got to be so difficult when you had all the red flags there and the protocol was to just schedule an appointment Mm. despite having, you know, if you're like, well, all we're allowed to do because it doesn't sound imminent. It just sounds like a risk of it. That's a lot of, I bet. Uh, emotional burden on the you know caregivers, right, on the social workers that are signing them out to worry about what might happen and then to have your worst fears realized. It's like with so many of these things that the authorities won't or can't step in and do something until it's almost too late, like with stalking or, you know, mm-hmm. anything like that. It's like, well, they haven't done anything, even though there's all these red flags. But then someone that's familiar with this, sees he's talking about getting his wife out he's talking about taking her home he carries a gun he's prone to be the you know if we're profiling the type of person who might do something and then the the most uh the thing you fear the most is what ends up happening and that's even in anonymous's comment you know when they said why didn't the facility do a more imminent safety mm-hmm. like consultation like or what do they say safety evaluation because and it sounds like he he had already thought of that yeah as he was checking yeah. out and when i first read this i thought oh it's probably for insurance purposes but then i wondered perhaps he really did think she was suffering and she was going downhill and he was trying to um ended on different terms but like she said if she doesn't have the wherewithal to make that call then you know it's illegal yeah but yeah super sad anyway you look at it but when especially when you think oh i might could have prevented this well this next one is from loose and the subject line is creepy neighbors on the underground railroad Hi, friends. I was listening to today's Freaky Friday and the story of the chocolate martini neighbor when it reminded me of a creepy but arguably less threatening neighbor I once had. In my early 20s, I moved into an apartment inside a mansion that had been turned into apartments long before. The mansion had been built for the first mayor of the city's brother a couple hundred years ago and had been part of the Underground Railroad. I often used to joke that I lived in the apartment from the Robert Redford Jane Fonda rom-com Barefoot in the Park because the house was full of very eccentric characters, but none so eccentric as Scary Gary. On the day I moved in, my cousin and I were exploring when we found the basement that still had the crudely carved out benches on the wall where the refugees would hide, and the tunnel that went out under the city. The tunnel now only went out about 100 yards or so and had been filled in at some point. When we came back up from the cellar, we ran into my new neighbor, Scary Gary. Gary was always in the same outfit. I never saw him when he wasn't wearing white joggers and a black muscle tank tucked in. He always smelled quite strongly of B.O. and was always just a bit too friendly and a bit too jumpy. Hindsight tells me now he was on some kind of uppers. 
The day we met, he introduced himself and was nice enough, if not just a little creepy. He was probably in his 40s and was always alone. Over the next few weeks, he was the only one of my four neighbors I regularly ran into inside the former receiving room. He was always very inquisitive about me and my life. He asked regularly if I had a boyfriend or a husband. I would stupidly always say no. One day, Gary knocked on my door and said he had bought something for me at a flea market and asked if I could come over and get it. My friend who was over visiting was vehemently shaking her head no behind the door. But not wanting to be rude, I said I would come, but that we were on our way out the door to go to the lake, which was evident by my miniskirt covering a bikini underneath. I walked around the corner to his door. He opened it and ushered me in. I started to take one step inside and came to a dead halt. When I tell you this man had no furniture, I mean the only thing in his apartment was a weight bench. But what is even more strange is that hanging all over his ceiling were opened pink umbrellas, as many as he could fit. And what's even more strange is that his entire floor was covered in mirrors. Big square mirrors from corner to corner. I'm not even sure how he could walk on them without them cracking. I was immediately aware of the miniskirt on my body and was not about to take a step into that room, even though he was getting impatient and aggravated that I refused to leave the hall. So he carried the gift to me, a comically large red glass face. I'm not sure why he saw this and thought of me, but I awkwardly thanked him and walked backwards with the ridiculous gift back to my door, where my friend was standing watching the exchange like a hawk. There were no more gifts from Gary after that day, or attempts to get me to come inside. My guess is he saw my very large police officer dad on one of his impromptu visits to make sure my doors were locked. Dads, am I right? But for a few years, even after I moved out, I would see Scary Gary in that same outfit, dumpster diving or walking all over town. 35-year-old me now knows I should not have been so worried about propriety and shut down his nosy questions and advances from the first interaction. But at least nothing bad ever happened, and now I have a funny story to tell about my neighbor with the mirrored floor and umbrellaed ceiling. I also held on to the vase for a couple of years before I let go of it, as it was always an entertaining party story to tell about the one time I had the strangest neighbor. Y'all keep on doing the Lord's work and making us all laugh, even in the darkest of days. Give Petal my best, Luce. I will be ruminating on why this man had open umbrellas for the rest of my life, probably. I'll think about that. And a mirrored floor. I thought I figured that's for perv shit. Like, yeah, but she brings perv. up a good point. How do you walk on that without it cracking and then cutting your feet all up? Industrial plastic mirrors? I mean, I guess they have it. I suppose discotheques. Is that a word people <laughs> yeah, use in 100%. America? Yeah. In other countries, I think. But I think there's probably some clubs and stuff that have that. But the pink umbrellas? So much of this, so many questions. The weight bench, where did he sleep? Maybe there was another room that had a bed, or maybe he just slept on that weight bench. That's right. He curls up on the weight bench. I can't envision opening my door to someone knowing this is what's behind the door and then not 
explaining any of that to the person on the other side. Listen, I rent my apartment out for people to shoot music videos right. in here. And the last people put up these umbrellas and didn't take them down, they're going to come back next week. I just didn't want to go to the effort. Anyway, I have your gift. I'm going to go and grab it. But instead, <laughs> it's just like, welcome. Yeah. And you're like, oh. Yeah. And mini skirt, bikini or not, doesn't matter what you're wearing. You could be in a hazmat uniform. Don't go in that house. Just stay in the hall. Mm-mm. Good job for your friend watching you like a hawk. Uh, mm-hmm. And good job for looking back and knowing, you know what? Fuck being polite. I don't need to go over there and get some trash gift that literally probably came from the trash from this creepy neighbor that gives me bad vibes. But we've all been young and all been worried about that. So, But now you know. Now we all know. You're like, I don't want to be rude. And it's like, ah, sometimes you do. Do you want to end up in the umbrella mirror room? No. <sighs> That's where nobody wants to end up. Mm-mm. Well, this next one we have is from Chrissy. The subject line is UFO or worse, the government. My family is a large piece of property just outside of College Station, Texas. Most of my close friends and family live between Galveston and Dallas. So the ranch is a wonderful place where we can meet and spend time together. One weekend, I had a large group of friends out at the ranch, including my husband, two best friends, and one of my best friend's husbands who works in a local ICU as a nurse. The weather was pretty mild and overcast, so we decided it would be the perfect night to go to the back of the property, known locally as the Bottoms, as this area has three miles of Navasota River running through it, to try to catch some real river monsters. It should be noted that this was the first weekend the Topo Chico Seltzer was available in grocery stores, so maybe you could see where this gets questionable. As the night went on and the topo seltzer floweth, we decided to build a huge fire on the riverbank because, like any good Texans, we needed a spot to burn our cans. There's some real yee-yee shit we get into out at the ranch. By 2 a.m., my husband, who's a bit of a character, and my best friend decided that they were adequately sauced and needed to make the 20-minute drive through the property to the main bunkhouse. Side note, my husband and best friend are a match made in my personal hell. Literally, folie adieu. They piled into a truck and drove away. As they drove away, my ICU nurse friend pointed to the sky and said, Oh, there goes the hospital heli, probably picking someone up out in the boonies and taking them into town. We all looked and went back to our can burning. As soon as the heli was out of sight, I got a frantic call from my very drunk husband. Did you see that drone? He screamed into the phone. You mean the life flight? I said, No, the drone. It was following me and Megan in the truck. No, there was a helicopter that Ty pointed out, but no drones. You're drunk. And then the classic line, I know what I saw. At this point, I had the phone on speaker and we were all mocking him. Megan, who does not like to be accused of false testimony, came through the phone. Chrissy, it was a drone following us. I continued to mock them and they hung up the phone in rage. We all had a good laugh about the drunk seeing the UFO and went about our very important can burning business. About 30 minutes later, myself and the river crew drank the last of our topos, burned our cans, and made the bumpy drive back to the bunkhouse to meet the survivors. My ICU friend doesn't drink and lives in College Station, so he and his wife said their goodbyes and left the ranch. As they were leaving, I saw the aforementioned helicopter coming back over the tree line headed back into town. I called for my husband and friend to see if that was what they saw. Both emphatically said, no, it was a drone. It hovered 10 feet over us. It only flew away when Megan got out the shotgun to shoot it down. Unconvinced, I scoffed. But then I noticed my phone ringing. 
It was my friends who had just left the ranch. Chrissy, the UFO is in front of us in the field by the road. No, the helicopter just flew back over. We saw it, I told them. No, no, no. This was a big drone about 10 feet in the air in front of the house. It's about six feet across with a light. A chill went down my spine. Ty hadn't had so much as a sip of alcohol. They confirmed everything Brennan said, and even they said they too saw the helicopter again. This wasn't it. What they saw was a drone and probably not a private one. The alleged UFO sighting was funny when we thought it was just an imaginary UFO born from liquor and my husband's proclivity for telling tall tales. But there was something about the realization of the drone that was so gross. The drone was huge, expensive, and obviously paying attention to us. It followed our vehicles into the wee hours through the property and scurried away from Megan's shotgun. All we can think of was maybe it was the game warden looking for poachers. Whoever it was, it left us feeling unsettled and unsafe in our redneck sanctuary, though my husband and best friend feel very vindicated and still bring up being right about the UFO. Where do you park a drone that size? You gotta you gotta be I mean, I guess if you live out there, it could be a personal drone, but it's probably more likely belongs to the government. Right? You gotta build your own landing pad or something. Mm, if landing it's 10 strip. feet. Or yeah, ten feet, of, six feet across. Or six yeah. feet across. Yeah, that's that's a. I mean, I it's a car. I guess it's like a big car. Yeah, it's. I mean, at least as big as you you know store like a an ATV or a go kart or something like that mm-hmm. or a golf cart. So yes. I guess it could be private. That's a big ass drone for just a regular old person to have, though. Yeah, I would be like, all right, rich person, why do you have a weird drone with, and it has eyes on it, because if they busted out the shotgun and it flew off, I think it saw, it means it shot, saw the gun. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this story besides the drone. One is um, that Megan had a shotgun after drinking all day and pointed it at a drone, which made it fly off. Yeah. That That's a wild sentence I never thought I would say, but... It makes sense that it's uh, maybe a game warden, but once you realize these are just a bunch of drunk people burning cans, I don't know if you need to follow them around unless you're just trying to spook them a bit. Or scare them. Yeah, you don't want to scare them because they have a shotgun. They're going to shoot your drone. That's true. That's true. (laughs) You could shoot a drone down. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what the... There's probably rules about that if something's above your house. Well, thank you so much for sending that in, Chrissy. This next one is from Casey with the subject line, A Body's Been Found. My fiancé and I moved to the suburbs from the city a few years ago because there was too much crime happening around our apartment for us to feel comfortable living there anymore. Little did we know we'd be moving close to a much more nefarious situation. I was taking out the garbage one day and smelled a terrible, rancid smell in the street. I thought it was just the hot, stinky garbage bin at first, And then I noticed the throngs of police vehicles next door. Everyone was looking at this one house on our street. Turns out the house I thought was abandoned was actually the 70-year-old man's house and that he had filled to the brim with his neighbor's garbage he had collected from our bins over the years. His mail was overstuffed in his mailbox and someone had called a wellness check-in for him. It took the police three hours of digging in his hoard until they found his body very literally crushed underneath the garbage stash. The smell I had smelled was death, not my garbage bin. But that's not all. A few days later, there is a hazmat team back at the house, and we found out that his mother, who would have been at least 90, had been missing for the last decade, 
but her Social Security checks were still being cashed. She was missing, that is, until they checked one of the deceased man's storage units down the street and found her decomposed body wrapped in a carpet. We still don't know if she died of natural causes or if there was any foul play. But it turns out, it doesn't matter where you live, there's always something a little sinister going on. I don't have any statistics to back this up. But I believe that it's not uncommon for people to not report deaths so they can continue collecting on Social Security checks from relatives. I do think that happens, like uh, pension, Social Security, whatever. All that stuff comes to a screeching halt as soon as it's the Social Security number mm-hmm. is marked as a deceased person. And there's, I'm sure people do this for decades if they could get away with it, you know, as long as they could get away with it, which is sad because you're robbing that person of a proper burial. Oh, yes. Instead, your mother is rolled up in a, in a rug, rotting away in a storage unit. That's the worst way that could have happened. Yeah. Sounds like this guy had a lot of problems hoarding mental health stuff and, uh, like, Casey says you don't really know what's going on where you live. I mean, unless you go in someone's house, you don't really know what your neighbors are up to. Even then, half the time you don't know. But with this, you know, if somebody went in, they would see, oh, he has a a hoarding problem. There is stuff everywhere. But if you're isolated and by yourself, then how does anyone find out? Because... Eventually, someone smells your rotting corpse and calls it in. Yeah, and I wonder for the storage unit company, that's got to be... Oof. I mean, maybe initially, if she'd been missing for a decade, then, you know, eventually it stops emitting any sort of, like, odor or things like that. But that is... Uh, owning a storage unit company has got to be... Uh, I bet you see some weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this. thank you so much for sending that in to us. Casey, this next one is from Johanna. Hope I'm hope I'm doing it justice. Johanna, and the subject line is the babysitter who lied. This story is 100% true and was one of the most surreal and terrifying events I've ever experienced. I want to preface that no children were harmed in this story. My name is Johanna. I grew up in London, England. The crazy encounter took place back in 2007 when I was 18, but I remember it like it was yesterday. A young blonde Norwegian lady turned up one Sunday to our local church. Her name was Marita, and she was the new au pair for a family who lived a few doors down from me. Excited to see a new face, we befriended her and soon found out she was working here for a year to save up for her wedding to our fiancé, Andreas, back in Norway. She said Andreas was also currently taking a year working in an orphanage in Bulgaria. Looking back now, it seems odd that an engaged couple would spend a year apart, And if it was to make money, working in an orphanage isn't the one. Anyway, one day Marita turned up to our front door sobbing, saying that she had been unfairly sacked from her au pair job and didn't have any place to stay. We of course took her in and let her live with us until she could arrange to fly back to Norway. After she went home, my mom stayed in close email contact with her, getting updates about her wedding and married life. We were so excited when mom told us that Marita and Andreas were expecting a baby, until one weekend, my mom called in tears to say that Marita had emailed to say that Andreas had been killed in a car accident. I cried too and told her to pass on my condolences. A week later, another email arrived, this time from Andreas's brother Frederick. 
He said Marita had lost the baby due to grief, and he was concerned about her as she was refusing to eat. When the church heard the news, everyone chipped in and paid for Marita to fly to London to stay with my family for a while. This is when things start to turn really weird. Marita arrived in surprisingly good spirits. Privately, I was shocked to see her looking the same as I had remembered her. She was about 5'2 and quite overweight. I was expecting her to be emaciated from the sound of Frederick's emails, but brush this off, everyone deals with grief differently. In the first week she was here, she talked a lot about Andreas and the night he died. She had sent him to collect a baby cot, and his car had collided with the truck, killing him instantly. I asked to see a photo of Andreas, as I realized I never had. She only had one small headshot of him on her laptop. She said his laptop was locked, and she didn't know the password, and it had all their photos and wedding photos in it. This struck me as odd, but also kind of plausible. Sometime later, she started confessing to me that Frederick, Andreas's brother, had gotten very close to her after Andreas's death and was now declaring he was in love with her, and she was conflicted with what to do, having slept with him before she came to England. This was super weird and inappropriate, but considering what she'd been through, I couldn't blame her for making bad decisions. One day, Marita randomly started having severe allergic reaction to some pesto, so bad she couldn't breathe. We rushed her to a she told me to grab some medicine from her bag, and I handed it to her as we got into the car. But at the hospital, she didn't have it anymore and couldn't name what medication she was on to the nurses. They hooked her up to a heart monitor and administered some drugs. I noticed that every time she mentioned Andreas, her heart monitor would skip about. At the time, I thought it was sweet she was getting emotional about her late husband. But now I realize heart monitors can jump about when someone is being untruthful. A few days later, Marita was at the swimming pool with my mom and little brother. She started being hysterical because she had lost her wedding ring. Everyone cleared the pool and the staff drained the filter, but it wasn't found. When they arrived home, the wedding ring was hanging on a little piece of string on the door handle in front of the house. Everyone was in disbelief. Marita broke down, saying that's how Andre proposed. He handed her the ring on a piece of string as a Christmas decoration. This was a supernatural miracle. A sign from him. Or was it? Fuck. This is where the horror movie began. My family had previously booked a holiday cottage away in the Yorkshire Moors, and there wasn't enough room for Marita to join. So I volunteered to stay behind with Marita at home. Yep, just her and I alone. One day, I got a call from my dad who told me to go somewhere private because he had to speak to me. He confessed something didn't feel right about Marita and her stories, but he didn't have internet access up at the holiday cottage. He told me to go to his office and use his computer and try to find out anything I could about her online. Sneaking away from Marita, I Google searched her name. Nothing. I Google searched Andreas, and funnily enough, that same small headshot photo came up on Google. I clicked on it, and it went through to a blog in Norwegian, so I couldn't translate but it showed photos from a children's orphanage in Bulgaria. There was a contact phone number on the blog. I dialed it. It rang out. Then a male voice answered, Hello? Suddenly realizing how crazy this sounded, I asked, Sorry, is this Andreas? Yes, who is this? Thank God he spoke English. Oh my God, he was fucking alive. Um, sorry, this sounds crazy, I said, but you're supposed to be dead? I quickly word vomited the story so far that a girl called Marita was living with us and she said he died and lost his baby and I couldn't believe he was alive and was this the right Andreas? He was concerned. 
Yes, he was Andreas, but he had never married a lady called Marita. He was aware of her, though, as he had a restraining order out against her. It turns out Andreas and his brother were famous pianists in Norway, and Marita was a troubled fan who had stalked him to the point he had gotten the authorities involved. He told me she wasn't of sound mind and that I needed to be careful. I called back my dad, relaying I had just spoken to a dead man who actually wasn't dead, and I was now living alone with the super stalker. My dad said under no circumstances do I let Marita know that I know. Continue as normal until they get back. They would leave immediately. Bracing myself, I went back downstairs like a scene from a 90s thriller movie. Marita was slicing chicken in the kitchen. She said that when she was pregnant, she couldn't stand the smell of chicken. In my head, I was screaming, but you never were pregnant. This was the most high adrenaline, surreal, am I in a fucking movie moment of my life. I called my boyfriend over to stay and we barricaded ourselves in my bedroom, petrified Marita would clock what we knew and turn on us. By sheer luck, this happened on the last day of Marita's stay. Someone from the church picked her up to go to the airport in the morning. When my family came home, we all unpacked what the fuck had just happened. Everyone confessing that privately, we'd all had our doubts about Marita, but in the moment, you brushed them off not wanting to offend. My mom was horrified to realize all the emails back and forth to Andreas's brother were, in fact, emails with Marita from a fake account. The wedding, the baby, the car crash, the allergic reaction, the lost wedding ring, all lies. We emailed Marita to say we had been in contact with the real Andreas. We knew her truth, and we were shocked she would abuse our charity with her fake story. The whole experience taught me that people can really not be who they say they are, and for years, not surprisingly, I had trust issues with people. A few years later on a train, I froze as I swore I saw Marita walking down the carriage. When I tried to get a better look, she was gone. Was Marita even Norwegian? Did she even really fly back? Did she just continue her web of lies with another family? I'll never know. Thanks for making such an amazing podcast. Love you, girls. Keep it creepy. This is some hand the rocks the cradle shit right here. This is a straight up movie. When it when you're like, what do you mean you're alive? What do you mean you've never met her? What do you like the same photo and it's the same guy? Your brain's like like putting all the pieces together, all the stories they've told you, all the like that's how he proposed to me. Very methodical, all of her stuff. And you have to ask what was the motive? I financial stuff she's getting flown from place to place people are charitable or just sympathy yeah sympathy and that must have been so hard and this if you are obsessed with this person then having everyone acknowledge that that he's your husband even though he's now deceased that that feels that goes in plays a part in the fantasy right it's making it real yeah Yeah. making it real for we gotta hear a follow-up though because we all Y'all emailed her to tell her, but then what happened? Did did she reply? Was there ever uh, any acknowledgement from her, or did she just ghost y'all? Johanna, we got to know. So we need to know. So let us know because that's a that was a roller coaster. It for sure feels like a movie. I could see the whole thing being a movie. In fact, that's kind of the plot of a lot of movies. So uh, maybe she saw, hey, it's worked for some. It could work for me. People, though, that, that do things like that, they are obviously not, not doing all right. Yeah. So, you know, she's – it was uh, maybe at the very least she got some 
felt some kindness and love from people, but it's all based on lies, so it's all bullshit. So right. she's really just manipulating and taking advantage of the kindness of others. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to everyone that sent in your stories. If you have an odd but true story, maybe you've encountered Bigfoot, you've seen a UFO, you had a brush with true crime, or you felt the presence of an otherworldly being, send them in at SinisterHood.com slash Freaky Friday. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in rolling the airwaves and getting into it tiers, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode in July. It was covering Ezra Miller, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. For patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit SinisterHood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming, and if you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com, click on Shop on the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. You can also share any episode by clicking the three dots in the top right corner and share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting SinisterHood.com slash playlist. All of this means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SinisterHoodPod and like us on Facebook at SinisterHood, TikTok, YouTube. We're all over the place. Christy, where are you out on the computer? I'm on Instagram at Christy and Wallace, and I'm on TikTok and Twitter at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm on uh, Twitter at MCK versus the world and on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Creepy.